The Other Side of the News is a current and dynamic companion to augment the discussions from The Other Side of Midnight. We investigate, explore, and extrapolate facts to gain better understanding of current affairs and events, and thus... To bring comfort and calm to our wide international audience. It's a spontaneous commentary. Based on well-verified references vetted through vigilance and discernment. Our desire, desire is to awaken your imagination with questions. Questions that have not been asked, yet need answering. The other side of the news is a place where you can come and be with us in community. Learning new things, asking questions, getting compelling answers. And interesting viewpoints. It's about curiosity. We present thought-provoking questions to incite your mind, propelling you to see the world in another way. Propelling you to see the world in another way. With clear insights and fresh perspectives on global events. Tune in for a balanced view of the other side of the news. Welcome. My name is Timothy Saunders. I'm one of your co-hosts on this 40th edition of The Other Side of the News. I'm speaking to you this morning from lockdown southwest Turkey, which for many of you is situated on the other side of this revolving globe. As this broadcast aligns with New Year's Day, a special time for many around the world, we choose to dedicate this edition to highlight some of the key insights we have experienced together since we began this show on the 3rd of April, which is remarkably only nine months ago. This was the point when we felt compelled to seek out and share the truth as far and as wide as possible using radio as our chosen platform. I would imagine this journey to an almost unrecognizable lockdown world destination we find ourselves in today to many may already seem like an eternity. As this transition continues to be flooded with information on multiple frequencies, many are attuned to awakening, understanding and discovery leading to enlightenment and freedom while others continue to tune in and align themselves with the widespread censorship, fear porn and control funneled through mainstream and social media, leading to suffering and misery. I would therefore highly recommend this is not only the correct time to drop the ball, but also the accompanying chains. I will soon be joined by co-host and producer Kintia, together with co-host and research Annette Driscoll, who are both speaking from the infamous wheelhouse near San Francisco, in California. We have entitled this show, Brave New Year. We literally find ourselves at a crucial milestone where humanity may choose to enter 2021 with a view to create a new renaissance based on freedom, well-being and abundance, or to use 2021 as the ramp to enter a techno dark age of tyranny and control, as is clearly defined by the minority. Many of you may have celebrated the end of this year with the idea that certain uncertainties have been resolved, such as the US election, multiple vaccines coming online, extended government handouts, and even the end of the Brexit saga. While I do not wish to piss on any of your fireworks, I would say it is far too early to think 2021 will be a breeze, quite the reverse actually. Unfortunately, despite the great progress that so many millions of people have made in their awakening process, coming to the realization that weak puppet leaders performing in their punch and duty governments around the world do not serve and protect us, their people, or even hold our best interest at heart, but are actually simple minions playing out superficial roles in a much larger web of deceit, exploitation and tyranny controlled by an infinitely darker, hungry and desperate minority 
which seems hell-bent on engulfing us with its cold and unforgiving shadow in the form of the Great Reset and the Fourth Industrial Revolution. While I would much prefer to offer you good news at this point, I believe we need to keep our eye on the ball and our radar alert to prepare ourselves for a new wave of economic, social and psychological attacks. Our aim at the other side of the news remains to inform you about what is really going on just beyond the veil that many programmed people may consider to be their reality. I believe 2021 can potentially mark the start of an ascending new beginning, or alternatively, it can potentially mark the descending continuation of the minority's plan through 2025 to 2030. This choice is one we must take responsibility for and embrace quickly as time is of the essence. For this reason, we research, validate and share the most poignant and current information available. We invite a pantheon of increasingly well-respected guests to discuss firsthand their specialist opinions on current affairs and their view of reality. We also welcome our listeners to co-create with us, all with the intent to connect the dots, to bring awareness, understanding and truth so you may make your own informed decisions. Why would anyone still choose to buy into the fear porn? I often use the analogy to wake up and smell the coffee to describe those who celebrate that aha moment, that eureka moment or realization of discovery. However, those who continue to buy into the mindless statistics supplied by mainstream and social media evidently cannot smell the coffee, nor the rats, nor the copious amounts of bullshit. So what power grabs their attention? Has the the estimated statistics and associated propaganda that fuels the core of this pandemic simply fails to validate the magnitude of this global reaction, meaning there is an alternative agenda in play. Let's take a quick look at official death figures for the newly independent United Kingdom, which has already been nicknamed Plague Island, most likely by a pro-European. In 2017, there were 533,253 reported deaths. In 2018, there were 541,589, which marks a slight increase. In 2019, there were 530,841 deaths, a noticeable increase. And in 2020, measured on November the 13th, some six weeks before the end of the year, there were 529,928 deaths reported. When we use simple maths to estimate the total for a full year, we may expect 553,000 deaths. Ah, that's an increase on circa 4.1% on 2019. That must be the evidence of COVID, right? Or is it? The number of deaths in 2020 is only 2% more than that of 2018. And that is without taking population increase into account. To briefly review this aspect, the population of the UK in 2018 was 66.27 million and rose to 67.9 million in mid-2020. This marks an increase of 2.5%. Surely a true pandemic, as defined by the original criteria before the UN recently changed their terminology, would generate a much higher body count and would be discernible in the yearly population records, right? While I acknowledge some people have sadly lost their lives during this last year, it is unlikely their death was caused by the alleged virus any more than any other aggressive flu. 
but was accelerated by the abhorrent stressful conditions created by the minority through their puppet players and lockdown strategy. Do not let the minority and their diverseness break your human spirit. It is time to wake up, to remove the harmful masks, to stop social distancing, to embrace family and loved ones, to reopen businesses and to choose to lead a positive and healthy lifestyle. You need to make this choice for yourself and for your children. And the time to start is now. I very much look forward to hearing our guests' perspective regarding this essential awakening process, all with a view to illuminate the best path to lead us to a positive outcome. You may find us at www.theothersideofmidnight.com. Click on the other side of the news in the drop-down menu or kindly listen to which guest is speaking. You may then select the relevant radio show in our archive Scroll down to the white, the other side of the news show banner. There you will see details for the appropriate show, quick links to our bios, as well as links to our show items, references and selected research. There is a huge collection of information to read, watch and listen to, most of which has been handpicked from independent sources. I urge you to study them and even download your own copies sooner than later as the censorship robots are working around the clock to rewrite our history in real time. During the last seven Earthly rotations, we have seen many remarkable events and headlines reported in the news. To discuss and present each topic in correct context could easily fill up an entire show by itself. As the other side of the news is not per se a typical news show, and in order to make the best use of our available airtime, I believe we should plot a direct course to greet the rest of our team and to introduce our guests. That said, I, I do believe it is noteworthy to mention the EU and the UK apparently came to some form of trade agreement this week, following four and a half years of bickering, which has enabled the Brexit deal to finally be accepted. Today marks the first day of an independent United Kingdom. Also, I discovered only this week, perhaps later than many of you, that the UK's prime puppet, Boris Johnson's father, Stanley Johnson, as well as a conservative politician representing the UK and Europe, is also an author of a number of books. Why is that interesting? Well, would you believe some of his titles include The Virus, Population Control, The Warming, World Population and the United Nations, just to name but a few. While I've not read any of these books yet, nor have I given one cent to Stanley in exchange for his words. However, is it coincidental that his son, Boris, is now seemingly making key decisions that have many of these topics at their core? I would be interested to learn more about the direction of his work and how it perhaps correlates with that of Klaus Schwab from the World Economic Forum. More on this later. It appears the nurse Tiffany Pontus Dover, who fainted on live TV 17 minutes after being injected with the Pfizer vaccine, sponsored by Bill Gates, has since sadly been reported as passing away. Her name was found on the official death register. Surely this would stimulate an investigation. Anyone? The UK has approved Oxford's AstraZeneca vaccine, also sponsored by Bill Gates, which has been in production for months. It is being hailed as the solution to bring life back to normal. I can only imagine the headline creator has not yet read the ingredients inside of this vile vial. And lastly, again in the UK, the country is being locked down more severely than ever, according to newly defined tiers, 
due to an alleged new strain of COVID. Interestingly, in the same week, it has come to light the original strain has still not yet been isolated, which rather cast a farcical reflection on the inappropriate RT-PCR test, lockdown measures and vaccines. Which also makes no sense of the fact that numerous emergency Nightingale hospitals were set up for such an occasion, at huge expense, at the will of Matt Hancock's ego. However, despite Richard Tice, a prominent member of the Brexit Reform UK party, inviting Sky News to show one of these deserted emergency hospitals on mainstream media, they continue to ignore this subject. Clearly, it is essential to wake up and surf this wave rather than become deluged by it. Despite the initial unpleasant realization of the truth, you will see there is light at the end of this tunnel. There is an increasing number of respected journalists, writers, politicians, doctors, lawyers, influencers, artists, activists, and spiritual warriors who are wide awake and are already making great impact. All they require from you is to unplug from mainstream and social media propaganda, to make your own independent research, to stop acquiescing, and to stand up for what you believe in with respect to others. Our guests represent a pantheon of such individuals, each with an important message to tell. I look forward to listening back to them with a the privileged perspective of hindsight. Good evening, Kinthia. Good evening, Anetta. And good evening, Keith, our sound engineer. And of course, good evening, Richard C. Hoagland. Happy New Year to you. I wish you all perfect health, unparalleled wealth, and total contentment. Good evening, Timothy. Our first featured guest is Max Wright from a show called Deciphering the Blockchain. In it, he explains the history of the monetary system and the abuse by the banksters and the hope held out by cryptocurrency. Okay, so we started at the beginning, we had barter economy, and then there uh, becomes money. And let's just, it's been a few different things over the years, but gold and silver coins stood out as a very, very useful money for a whole bunch of good reasons. And the primary reason was that um, they needs to be, so money needs to be a bunch of things. It needs to be um, so scarce, like there's no point using um, grains of sand on a beach because everyone just goes and picks up a grain of sand and you can buy a house with it. That's no good. So it needs to be scarce. It needs to be fungible. You can't use like beautiful pieces of art or real estate because, you know, is what is the, what's the value of one piece of art versus the other? How do you give change? So fungible means that every single unit is the same. So gold and silver worked well. A gram of gold and a gram of silver, they're all interchangeable. You can, uh, I, can tr I can trade my gram of gold for your gram of gold and it's, it's a fair trade. Um, so there's lots of other characteristics of money that have been useful. Now, gold was especially good because uh, it was one of those things that were not scarce. It took an enormous amount of effort and manpower to either pan for gold, dig for gold, mine for gold. And it, you had to exchange labor to go and get gold. And in that way, it was scarce. It was always also good to melt down and, and the, temp, you know, the, the technology at the time with how hot they can get their flames meant they could melt down gold and silver easily and mint coins with it. But then, so they, starting with um, the Roman Empire and a few other places, they discovered that they could, the, the, the Caesars and whoever else could tax the gold. So they, they did that by clipping the coin. As you entered the city, they clipped a little edge off the coin, and the coin got a little bit smaller, but it still had Caesar's face on it, and they still said you could use it for the same. But they took the little clippings and melted it down and made more coins. And over time, these uh, coins just got smaller and smaller and smaller, 
And that was the very first method of debasement, how they devalued the coins by clipping a little bit of it. Well, we can fast forward a few years and eventually they convince us, and I'll, I'll get to they in a moment, but they, they convince us to use paper money. And the way that worked is if you wanted to, um, it became very inconvenient to walk around with pouches of gold. So you could get robbed. It was heavy. It was clunky. Uh, and also, um, if you wanted to buy a house, you had to show up with a, a wagon full of gold. So around 16th, 17th centuries, where it became really popular, you, what happened was there were what's called the goldsmiths. And they, that was the beginning of banking. What you would do is you would leave your gold in the bank and you would get a paper receipt. And you'd say, you know, John has um, 50 ounces of gold in the bank. And then if you want to go and buy a house, you take that, that receipt uh, and you say, uh, hey, hey, I'm here to buy your house. Here's the 50 ounces of gold. You can take the receipt back and collect the gold. Voila, paper money is invented. We're now, you, now we're shrouding with the bits of paper, which is representative of the gold in the goldsmith's vaults. Then the goldsmiths started getting a little bit clever and dishonest and corrupt and basically started doing things a little bit clever. They realized that they had a vault full of, you know, tens of thousands of people's gold, and there's like thousands of ounces in there, but, and there's lots and lots of these bits of paper floating around the society and the economy. But nobody knows how much gold is in the bank. And the banker says, you know what? If I just print up a receipt, just make it up. No one's given me gold. So normally people give me gold and I give them a receipt. If I just print up the receipt out of thin air and lend it to somebody, I can make them go and work hard, earn more gold or, or bits of paper, pay me back plus interest. And once they pay me back, I just tear up the piece of paper that I wrote up and gave to them. And I've, and I've just made money. They, they paid me back plus interest. So the, the thing that I lent them, I can just tear that up and throw it away. I made it up out of nothing. And that sucker went and worked hard, paid interest, and gave me even more back than I lent him. And no one was the wiser. And they did this, and they got away with this. And the gold, the gold vaults, or the gold um, smiths, I should say, eventually became known as bankers. And through this method, they became some of the richest people in Europe. Um, even they had the kind of wealth that could rival um, kings and queens. And they became the most powerful men of Europe, and they became, you know, the beginnings of the banking cartel. And this method, by the way, was called fractional reserve banking. As long mm -hmm. as you didn't print up too many phony receipts and lend it to society, no one really knew that you, did, you didn't have enough gold in the bank to warrant the receipts that you've put out. If they got wind of it, there would be what's called a bank run. People would be thinking, hang on a minute, there's all this money floating around. I don't believe they've got all that gold in the vault. And everyone would go and hand in their receipts and say, give me your gold, give me your gold, give me your gold. And if the goldsmiths pushed their luck and everyone did that and there was a run on the bank, they would be exposed as scammers and criminals. And the, you know, it, it, the whole system would come undone. And that happened plenty of times. But if they were just smart about it and did it a little bits and pieces, they could get away with it and just keep continuously earning money for nothing. Well, eventually, they started partnering with the kings and queens of Europe, and they, 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 the, the very best became partners with the kings and queens. And they said, listen, I don't want competition. Make everybody use my money in the whole country, and I can print as much as you want and give it to you. It can fund your wars. It can fund your explorations. It can fund your welfare programs. And I will have the exclusive right to print money in this country. And that is the beginnings of a central bank. They partnered, the, the, the corrupt bankers 
partnered with the kings and queens, and the kings and queens forced everybody to use a certain bank's currency, and it became the national currency. Up until then, you just had lots of whatever people could use for currency, whatever they want. Some people would mint gold or silver coins, and some all these different entities would do it, and people could choose what money they used. But after that, the kings and queens dictated what money you could use. Now, all of this gets to a point where you can start to see through this fractional reserve banking system that the bankers and the governments or the kings and queens at the time start working hand in hand to effectively steal money from the people. They get to print money out of thin air, right? Counterfeit it is what we would call it if anybody else did it and charge people interest and they get money for nothing. And the amount of money that they made is just beyond comprehension. We're talking about rivers of money flowing into the, the banking cartel's pockets, and they just got richer and richer and became the most richest and powerful people in the world, and basically have maintained that position of power ever since. We're talking centuries long. The, the families that own those banks are, are now their dynasties, they're the things you've heard of, the, the Rothschilds and the other bits and pieces. These people, through fractional reserve banking, have just has so much money come into them. Now they can buy up television stations and newspapers, and they can control so much of what you see and think. And it's why this stuff is never taught. And it's why my economics teachers in, at college and at high school never knew the answer to the question, because it is never, ever taught. Okay, people throughout the years, people have started to realize this and they thought, okay, for gold and silver had some shortcomings. They were able to clip the coins. I get it. But I literally saw them do it. Right now, they're just stealing money by just printing, printing money. When they print money, they get the value out of it and the value of the receipts that I hold go down. So eventually, the whole, the whole system of having gold in the bank evaporated. Now, the, the pieces of paper that we use, no one's promising you get to go and trade that in for gold anymore. So we just have pieces of paper. And now, you know, the run on the banks kind of achieves nothing. They can just keep printing money and putting it in the bank. The, the run on the banks doesn't expose the crime anymore. What, I guess the, the real, the, what I really want people to understand here is that method, that mechanism of inflation. Imagine if there was a very nutritious soup in front of us. And I, got to, I, took a, I took a sip out of it, and then I put some water in into it to top it back up. And I handed it to the next guy, and they took a sip of soup, and they put some water in it to top it back up, and then the next guy, and the next guy, and the next guy. Well, 200 people deep, the person's just drinking water, and there's no more um, nutrition left in that soup. That's how the monetary system works today. When the money is printed at the Federal Reserve, when the money is printed at the various central banks around the world, it's the government, it's the banks, it's the people who get the first drink of the soup, get full value out of it, and the peasants out in the field working, it's just water by the time we get it and the, 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 uh, the value of our money goes down. It's like, you know, a carton of milk used to cost three pennies and now it costs $3. That's what's happening. That's what inflation is. It's because of the money printing that's going on. So... The best way, prior to Bitcoin, the best way we had to fight back against this was precious metals. It was gold and silver because they, they couldn't just print pieces of paper and sell. You can't just print gold and silver. If you choose to do your savings in gold and silver, it's there. Now, the free market, we, there's, I mean, yes, not, I understand this might be fresh for some people, but there's been a lot of people in history who understand this. And they're like, I don't want to save up in bits of paper that's getting inflated away. I'm going to go and buy gold and silver. In fact, I'm even going to be at my shop. I'm going to encourage everybody else to pay me in gold and silver. In fact, I might even give them discounts to pay me in gold and silver. And gold and silver became competition to the banking cartel. They wanted, every, they wanted to force everybody 
to use their paper so they could continue their scan. Now, this, the, the resistance against gold and silver takes various forms, but what they, they will stop at nothing. And what is apparent is we all understand that. The people who would want to use it, it's just, most, they, they, we know that they would not let us do it. And I'll give you some examples. So to begin with, the first way they make you use their paper is they make you pay taxes in paper. So everyone needs to get some paper at the end of the year in order to pay your taxes. Okay. If not, they'll come and grab you, throw you in jail. But nonetheless, I can still, I can, at my shop, I can accept gold and silver currency. And the free market's got some fantastic solutions for that now. We can do, uh, we can put gold and silver in a vault. We could have an app on our phone and I could pay you, you know, two grams of gold for your jacket, let's say. And like we could do that and we'd never have to use paper money. Here's the big, big weakness with gold and silver. At the end of the day, to protect their monopoly, the governments and the banking cartels will send men with guns to steal the gold and silver. And we've tr we have tried, we as a society have tried it decade after decade, century after century. Eventually, the men with guns come and steal the gold and silver. They will not let you hoard it. And some examples of that, just recently in the last 10 or 20 years, there's been services like uh, gold money. There's been um, things like Liberty Dollars. There's been all these kinds of services where you, you can do as I've described. You can send in your gold to a vault. They get audited by a random top five accounting firm every three months so you know the gold's really there and it's not fractionally reserved banked. And we can use an app and I can pay for stuff in grams of gold. We can go back earlier than that. During the Great Depression, everyone started hoarding gold and they, um, they, fought, they made it illegal to own gold. And eventually, I, we, if you went into the bank to uh, open your, um, uh, your uh, safety deposit box, there'd be an IRS official looking over your shoulder to see if you've got gold and silver in there. So over the years, gold and silver was um, put down by the banking cartel, some under various different reasons. Most recently, it's all about um, anti-money laundering and um, and terrorism. In order to stop money getting to terrorists, we can't let gold and silver exist. So, Liberty Dollar and gold and gold silver things they all get shut down. Okay, now we are ready to get to Bitcoin. What is so special and so incredible about Bitcoin is that it is censorship resistant. It has all of the qualities of gold and silver, um, for, for largely, but men with guns are useless against it. At the end of the day, a Bitcoin is a program where there's a very limited supply of it. It's scarce. It's fungible. It's all the other wonderful things we need money to be. But most importantly, it can, exi it can exist as just a, a group of numbers or a group of words. You can, just by knowing your password in your head, it might be like a 12-word password. It might be you know, door, microwave, fridge, just like a, a big, long string of words. And with that big, long string of words, you can go to any computer anywhere in the world and type in your string of words, and all of a sudden, you can open up your wallet, which might have $10 in it or $10 billion in it. And that fact um, makes it censorship resistant. Can, can you walk across the border with literally nothing but the clothes on your back and get to the other side and type in those words and just get $10 billion out of the network if that's what you had in it? Yes. So it, it, it gives us a tremendous amount of freedom whereby we can break the backs of the banking cartel and they cannot stop it like they could gold and silver. There's another aspect to um, that fact, to the, the concept that Bitcoin is censorship resistant. 
Bitcoin is um, the way it works is there is a, a ledger. A ledger is just a, an accounting book. Just imagine an accounting book or a little database that says, uh, you know, account number seven, number seven, one, two, three, four has 10 bitcoins in it. Account number eight, two, one has 50 bitcoins in it. And this ledger exists on tens of thousands of computers around the world in every single country. And I believe someone even put one on, put it on a satellite and put it up in space. Like this ledger exists everywhere. And every time someone makes a transaction, if I send you a Bitcoin, the ledger is adjusted. My balance goes down one Bitcoin. Your balance goes up one Bitcoin. And the ledger is adjusted. And so the ledger exists on 10,000 computers. In order for the system to work, you only one of those computers needs to exist. So if America wants to shut down the internet, that doesn't mean the Bitcoin network stops. Like the, the Bitcoin will still, network will still work in every other country. Let's say they want to shut down the internet on the entire planet. Well, that means the Bitcoin network won't work for a time being, but if they ever bring the internet back, all of our funds are still there. We can continue on transacting just like before. Um, and so you've got this thing that unlike gold and silver, which was rather easily defeated by men with guns, well, now Bitcoin cannot be defeated by men with guns. You can't, you, you, you can't shut down the network and people can, have, can carry their funds in their head. It can't be beaten out of them. They have plausible deniability. Do you have any money on you, sir? No, I don't. Okay, through the metal detectors you go, nothing showed up. You're free and clear. And the most special thing about Bitcoin is that it is censorship resistant. And because of that, it is the way, it is the mechanism that we can defeat the centuries-old banking-government relationship cartel that forces us to use their money, which they can steal from us through the mechanism of inflation. Our next guest is Mass Palsvig, who was featured in a show called Deja Flu. He left the banking world when he became disillusioned by the deep corruption in this segment, he talks about the use of fear by the global elite and their agenda to control the world and eliminate much of the population. I think it has much more to do with the psychology of fear and creating the boogie monster that's out there that everybody can be very, very fearful that they can't see. What do you think and how do you feel about that coming from your country? Yeah, no, I... I, I... I totally agree with you, and um, I also think that there's another factor as well, which is to to um, divide people in two groups: the people who um, blindly follows orders and believe uh, in the in the government, and uh, if they say wear a mask, they will wear a mask. If they say uh, take a forced vaccination, they will do that. There are even people, even people who volunteer their babies to be t be part in testing vaccines. I mean, who would do that? But they, they, that exists as well. Um, and then the other group that, lo that looks at f on facts, such as you are, you are breathing in um, carbon dioxide, and it's bad for you. You're supposed to breathe it out, not breathe it in. Uh, mm. So, um, and, and we obviously are against it. So what they're trying to do is pl try to play these two groups out against each other. 
And they are very skilled in this. They do that women against men, black against white, old against young, rich against poor. Uh, and when I say rich against poor, I mean the middle class against working class. I mean, not the super rich, obviously, because they are above it and they are the one who, who are pulling the strings, right? We still have differences from every country, uh, which I'm, I'm very glad we do. But I, I think it's a, it's a global plan um, to make uh, globally what they did in um, in the uh, Soviet Union and um, and Mao's China and so on, and it's basically creating a Bolshevik dictatorship uh, where they have di dismantled the middle class. They have um, uh, a few, obviously, few super rich families in control, and then they have an, an aristocracy of elite that are allowed to to make a lot of money and uh, have special privileges, just like we saw in communist uh, Russia and and uh, communist China. And then you have a lot of people working for the government and a lot of people on state handouts or food stamps. That's what they want. They want, they, they want to dismantle and destroy the middle class. And that's exactly what all this lockdown obviously is doing, is killing all the small businesses. The Walmart is open. The small businesses are shut. Amazon makes a lot of money. Google makes a lot of money. The, the big billionaires, they get richer. And, um, and all the, the mom and pop shops, they go belly up. And it happened, it's, it's happening all over the world. It's just... And this is, uh, I mean, it's just a, a following a sequence after the, well, their, their main goal was to destroy the family union, um, first the greater family, extended, extended family, then then the, 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 family, the, the smaller family of the father, mother, and two children, and then they want to destroy the religion and, um, and the nation states, the, the, the feeling of, of, of national identity and, uh, and pride and, uh, and taking pride in your own culture. That is being, uh, you know, boo-hoo, aha, you know, it's horrible to do that. Um, so, and, and because we have allowed them to destroy our family, destroy our religion, destroy our nation, destroy our culture, now they're coming in with the kill, which is destroying the middle class totally. And that way, their goal is to create a global dictatorship where everybody are slaves and the best collaborators are rewarded with uh, being prison, prison wardens, prison guards, and... Um, and a little bit higher up, the next rank would be to be the new aristocracy, which are, are basically people who are willing to do absolutely anything. And when I say anything, I mean anything, including inject, injecting, uh, if not lethal, potentially lethal, but certainly very, very, very unhealthy um, forced vaccinations into 7 billion people. Um, this is where we are. And I mean, if people will not fight now, they will never, they will never fight. I mean, this is it. This is the final battle. objective from the beginning, um, if you look back through English history, the common law and equity both developed under different systems. Right. The common law was originally always the, the original system of law which was biblically based. And it was handed down orally from person to person over the years because there wasn't any, any printing press or writing until the Middle Ages, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas equity, however, what would happen is the common law at that time was extremely strict. Very, yes. very harsh. <laughs> and most people fail to, to realize the, uh, the strictness. For, and I know, for example, um, one criminal charge sometimes could take four or five pages to lay it out of everyone. And if you missed a, a, a dotting an I, you, the, the guy could have the charge thrown out. So what developed was eventually people who thought that the common law was too harsh would 
petitioned the king for redress. And then the queen, king I should say, or queen, would determine if they were going to have mercy on him and what they were going to do. Um, sometimes they were thrown to the wind and said, too bad, you're, you're out of luck. Other times they would get redress. And what would happen as more and more people started going to the king, he couldn't handle the workload. So he appointed it to the chancellor. Mm-hmm. And that he started doing it, which then became the court of chancery or equity. And of course, a number of principles developed in equity. I think there's 12 or 13 of them now um, that developed over the years where it basically was a uh, a separate form of, of law based on fairness and various principles that developed parallel to the common law. And then early in the 1900s, they were fused into one court because you had different courts, common law and you had equity. And they fused them into one court where the same court would apply both systems of law. And if there was a conflict, and only if there was a conflict, the common law would prevail. Hi, I'm David Kevin Lindsay from Canada. And I would urge everybody to be able to support the other side of the news. With the news media all over the world essentially promoting the government narrative on virtually every issue out there, everybody needs an alternative source of accurate, truthful information. And the other side of the news provides that information, that source of information from a variety of speakers all over the world with personal knowledge and experience that they can share with everybody in over 160 countries that they're involved and that they go to, to show everybody in the world what they are doing to support and encourage everybody else to also stand up for freedom issues throughout the world. I would urge everybody on a regular basis to listen and support the other side of the news. Welcome back to The Other Side of the News. Our next segment comes from a show called Reality Hijack 911. Mick Harrison from the Lawyers Committee discusses with Anetta the schism between the Patriot Act and the Fourth Amendment. I wanted to kind of give our listeners a bit of background about the Patriot Act, how it vastly expanded the government's authority to spy on its own citizens and while it was reducing the checks and balances like, uh, of judicial oversight, public accountability, the ability to challenge the government in searches, searches in court, those types of things. I also the history. And um, I particularly wanted to bring up how it directly violates the Fourth Amendment, or that's the way I see it. And since I'm talking to a bunch of attorneys, I'd love to, to get your view on that. But the Fourth Amendment in the way I understand this is it it says the government cannot conduct a search without obtaining a warrant and showing probable cause to believe that the person has committed or will commit a crime. So how is this still in place and what can we do with this? Nick would be the best person to answer that question. Well, um, interesting question. And I think uh, there's been a recent court decision. I haven't had a chance to read it. It's so recent that seems to be moving in the direction that you're suggesting, which is, short answer is that the Patriot Act as a statute passed by Congress, of course, has to give way to the Constitution if there's a conflict. 
I think this recent court decision found a conflict. So litigation, which is, you know, what I do and what the lawyers committee is doing some of on several fronts is probably the answer initially to solving the problem. Of course, the courts have the power to strike down any statute that violates the Constitution. But the other alternative is, of course, to get Congress to rescind it or amend it to take out the offending unconstitutional parts. That takes a certain uh, critical mass of people and maybe, uh, how should we say, a landslide in an upcoming election to achieve that, which may be possible. So those are the two uh, obvious paths that come to my mind for fixing what is, I think you correctly uh, describe as a significant constitutional problem. Right. Yeah. So um, anyone who listens to the show knows I kind of have a thing for the Constitution. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, but yeah, I mean, I I look at the history of this, uh, you know, the Patriot Act here and how it was it was slammed through. It was 342 pages. It changed, you know, 15 existing laws. And yet the uh, the Senate version of this was given to them without any time to review it. They didn't have any kind of uh, time to debate it. And basically, they were threatened with the thing that if you didn't vote for this and something happened while they were all terrified, only six weeks after the uh, the incident of 9-11, that, uh, you know, that you would be you would be held responsible for any further terrorist act. And I think that there was, so to the anthrax issue, I think there was a lot more than just that verbal threat of you will be held responsible if you vote against this, you know, you're, you're one of the bad guys. So there was an immense amount of coercion, but there was also this anthrax and some very, you know, very real, I mean, they, they snuffed these people as far as I can tell. And, you know, when we look in hindsight, we look at the way the, the covering up of reporting, that happened along the way, you know, like from the very beginning, um, there were a, a lot of things. I remember at the time hearing things and all of a sudden it would just vanish. It was like it was never said, but it's like, I know I heard that. So so what do we do with something like this? I mean, I know you guys are doing something with it, but the reason I ask it in that, that um, tense is because I really see the corollary between what is currently happening. We had the boogeyman terrorists, which may or may not have ever existed, and I don't think it did. That's my personal, and you know. And then we have the the boogeyman virus that may or may not ever have existed, and certainly it isn't what they've told it to be. I mean, the story that we're told, we you know, there's pretty much irrefutable proof at this point. So. How can we how can we learn from this and 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 stand up to what's currently happening also because it's so similar. Well, this is Mick. Let me start, and my colleagues may want to chime in. I think there is a pattern here, and the pattern goes back further than people may think. I guess it started back at least 1963 with the Kennedy assassination. Speaking for myself, but in terms of trying to control the public's perception and trying to get away with major crimes to essentially accomplish a coup first in this country and then to use the power of this country to you know control world resources which i think is what's involved here it's still in progress but seems to be what's involved you're talking about a pattern uh over several decades when i became a lawyer in 19 
92, I guess it was, and I was working at the Government Accountability Project as a law student a couple years before that. One of my first cases at uh, GAP was to represent EPA scientists who were fighting against a campaign at that point initiated by the administration to essentially politicize science. And that uh, campaign has continued. Uh, we, you know, we've won some battles on it, but it continues. And the anthrax petition that we're filing tonight, or maybe early tomorrow, depending on when we get off this call, is essentially another chapter of that, you know, uh, politicizing science and fake news about science in order to control perception of the American people and control our government and by using that power to, you know, sort of try to gain global dominance. So the, the short version of the anthrax attacks to punctuate what's already been said is that Senator Leahy and Senator Daschle, who were two of the more rational voices trying to slow down this rush to pass the Patriot Act, they were the targets, two of the primary targets of the second wave of the anthrax letters. A letter was opened in Senator Daschle's office that had the highly sophisticated, highly lethal powdered anthrax. Another letter of the same type, maybe even more lethal, happened to be sequestered and a quarantine because of the early attacks being discovered. And so it didn't, it didn't reach Senator Leahy. It was found in the quarantine mail. But it, in either of these letters could have easily killed those two senators. And it appears that that was the goal, was the attempt, you know, it was an attempt to assassinate two United States senators to, to promote a, a political or a corrupt agenda that we've been talking about. And there was um, anthrax found in the Supreme Court building, in other Congress people's offices. Uh, you know, this is a matter we're still investigating. We have a follow-up filing that we hope to do in a few weeks in October to a federal grand jury on this issue, which, you know, we hope to have more evidence gathered by then. But, you know, this may have been not only uh, an attempted assassination, which, by the way, equates to the crime of treason because you have a domestic attack originated from in the United States from, I mean, this is, we're talking about the evidence indicates we're open-minded, but the evidence is strong at the moment. It came from a military source in the U.S. or a military contractor source, and it was used against the United States government and the Congress. That is treason. So it, that explains, I think, why the FBI wanted to, unfortunately, sort of sweep all that under the rug and talk about a lone wolf, because otherwise it gets very complicated very fast about who was responsible for planning this treason, what was the goal, and, you know, at the moment, those perpetrators are still out there. And whether they're connected to the COVID thing is not, as David and Barb said, something the Lawyers Committee has weighed in on yet, but we're individually concerned about it. We may take it on. But there is a pattern. And the, the pattern with the anthrax issue is that certain of these corrupt power holders are willing to use even biological weapons, which has been sort of unthinkable even by, you know, the some of the rogue countries we've criticized in the United States. But these bad actors are willing to use biological weapons, and they're willing to use them against their own people, meaning in the United States, 
to achieve their political or their corrupt agenda. And the, the, the anthrax petition that we filed and the, the grand jury petition that's coming may well establish enough of a pattern there that it may lead us into looking at whether or not COVID-19 is the next chapter. I don't know that it is, and I don't know that it isn't. It's certainly worthy of a close look. On my show items, under Annetta's show items, number one is a graphic of the, the, what the Patriot Act has done. And what it, what it gets back to, again, is this idea of going after a terrorist, whether it's there or not. And what it ends up saying is that all of this invasion of our privacy, all of the things that they have done that are, uh, from my viewpoint, completely unconstitutional, in the end has not produced any evidence against actual terrorism. So uh, when, when I look at this and we talk about patterns, and I, I think you eloquently said that, is that the patterns are about the, um, how do I want to say that? The, the, the patterns exist to, to push these other agendas in other words, they're a cover-up. These things that these events that happen, they're they're these disastrous events, and then they offer a solution. The solution is always an erosion of these rights that we have, and and um, it's always the same pattern. So it matters not whether it's a whether it's real or not, whether it's biological warfare or not, whether it's a made-up thing or not. We seem to have the same thing. I mean, right? Um, yeah. So and and then the, the the Patriot Act is about surveillance and and um, our you know I remember back like I used to fly and I used to put a different name on my ticket I'm, I'm giving away my age <laughs> but uh, I used to fly and then in the Clinton uh, era uh, all of a sudden we had to have you know all these IDs to fly and all that before that we didn't I mean people people forget we used to actually go into airports and all these things happen well you know we're kind of like the, the the frogs that are in the cold water and then they turn up the heat and they turn up the heat and we're cooked and now they're just like really you know they're they're deep frying us because we forget these these things are taken away piece by piece play you know little item by little item and sometimes when we have something like 9-11 and then the anthrax scare right behind it that it you know, they, they erode enormous amounts of our rights at one time. And I think right. this is exactly what we're staring. We're, we're, it's been enormous. We've never had anything like this. You know, it's way overused. The term was unprecedented, but it's unprecedented what we're having right now. You know, what no. uh, too, is that uh, uh, the, the uh, scenario they follow all the time is uh, there's a problem. Mm. And then there's a reaction to the problem. They cause the problem, and there's a reaction. The people react to it, and then they they give you the solution. So in 9/11, you have outright panic and horror, and then you have these all these acts coming in, whether it be the TSA acts or with the Homeland Security or the Patriot Act, and you you have all these now protections. And if you go back to our founding fathers, it's like when Benjamin Franklin is talking about you know, the, the debate between freedom and security. And, uh, you know, if, if you, uh, for example, you give up your, your right to have a gun, then, then you're giving both your rights up. You know, you're not going to be secure. But Jefferson hit on it, again, another founding father. He said, if you want a democracy, you have to uh, be vigilant and educated. And uh, Americans aren't necessarily that vigilant uh, because they're, they're, they're distracted all the time. And they're not educated because they're they're miseducated by the media and also sometimes by the schools. 
But if you have a, a vigilant, educated population, they would have never got away with this. Uh, if, if you teach people, uh, you know, some of the things that we're talking about here as far as the patterns and how to detect a pattern. Uh, you know, and maybe the first question you should ask when you see something happen that's tr- uh, so so terrible is that never count out the government as a possible suspect because the bottom line is control and uh, for governments and, and for, you know, people that want to, uh, to you know, take over. And uh, th- that's 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 something to always, uh, you know, to consider that uh, that the end game, what is the end game? And if the end game is control, then then these things are being set up to control people and to maneuver them and manipulate them and uh, and direct history. So Mick mentioned JFK, and that certainly directed history because, uh, you know, he was going to do something about the Vietnam War. And we have this uh, 9-11 thing that's redirected history again. And the difference now is that we become enemy combatants, right? Before, mm-hmm. it was like a little bit different. But now we are being attacked. It's almost like in some ways for years, uh, you know, our country, unfortunately, has been uh, coming down on third world countries and being uh, supporting dictators and things of that nature and taking their people's freedoms away. Well, now it's come back to haunt us, you know, and uh, to take our freedoms away and, and attack our constitution. So a lot of it, I think, if we study, restudy the, the founding fathers, we'll see a lot of wisdom in what they said, because they fought a great tyranny, and that's what we have to do in our own ways. Now we have a great tyranny before us that's so sophisticated, and uh, and clever, and intelligent, and 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 they think everything out. So we sort of, you know, we have to match that up somehow. And I think what we have to match it up with more than anything, though, is is our moral integrity and courage and a love, heart, heart, heart energy uh, can be defeat them eventually, they overcome the fear, which they create, you know, everywhere and all everything they do. Here's the big word, law. It stands for land, air, water. When you are born and you come into this world, you're born on the land, not the water. That's what the bar operates in. That's their jurisdiction, the jurisdiction of the sea. Okay? Law stands for land, common law. A stands for air, acoustical law, canon law. And W stands for water, which is admiralty maritime law. That's what lawyers are trained in, which is contract law. It's the difference between legal and lawful is legal applies to that which is incorporated, right? Legal persons, which are fictions that are created when we're born. That's what the birth certificate represents, people. Okay? It's very disturbing when you understand that truth. For the other side of the news, my name's Christopher James, and I just wanted to give my full support to these wonderful people who are bringing incredible light forward at this time and moment in our world. The truth has never been more important, and I was incredibly blessed to be with them and share with them enormous truths on our very first interview, and I'm looking forward to coming back and seeing our world finally coming together under one hood, under one understanding that there's truly only one of us, and that there's only love that matters in this world, and this one truth is going to save our world, and I'm so blessed to be able to bring this forward and share this light with my fellow man and woman from this show this evening. So support them all you can moving forward. They're an incredible bunch of people, and Godspeed.
And welcome back to The Other Side of the News. Our following segment is from a show called Punch and Judy. Our honored guest, Dr. Judy Mikovits, exposed the corruption within Big Pharma around the production of vaccines. I basically told them that they didn't get away with it. They didn't get away with removing everything from my offices of 40 years, of the computers, of the drives, of everything that they tried to do on September 29th when I was fired and set up the office to make it look like I committed a crime. Uh, They didn't get away with scaring me in the jail experience. They didn't get away with suiciding me. Um, They didn't get away with murdering me. That's what we show in the book, Plague of Corruption. Mm -hmm. Uh, So um, basically because um, I you know we have all the evidence so we have all the samples we can prove the pandemic is a pandemic to cover up um, the you know the the damage we've done over the last 30 years in this liability free vaccine program that we mandated on the most susceptible in our society Judy, and and killing uh, them uh, who are they I ask this to all of our guests. I'm, I'm very interested to hear your your answer to who they are. Um, this is, you know, uh, organized crime. This is the highest levels of our FBI, um, the highest levels of our government. Uh, clearly Tony Fauci, clearly the Gates Foundation, the WHO, the Chinese Communist Party. Um, you know, and and the the heads, Nobel laureates, members of our National Academy of Sciences, that the highest scientists are literally participating in commission fraud to change the science, to interpret it a different way, to have anyone who figures it out murdered or uh, suicided or um, their careers destroyed. Um, mm-hmm. And so the good news, I always I like to say to, to Mickey Willis, uh, <laughs> you know, God has a sense of humor um, because um, uh, it, 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 you can't uh, in science, you know, Frank Rossetti and Judy Mikovits wouldn't have worked together for 37 years. Judy wouldn't have seen the corruption as a 22 year old in HIV AIDS, how they made culturally worldwide, uh, made us believe somehow a retrovirus knew if you were a gay man, an IV drug user or a uh, uh, a prostitute, um, <laughs> um, just like they're trying to make us believe COVID-19, um, you know, that blacks are more susceptible. No, COVID-19 is just a covert cover-up operation worldwide. The head of the UK, London, the blood supply heavily contaminated. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so the boroughs, the Welcome Trust, the journals, the scientific journals, the pharmaceutical companies worldwide, um, they're they're in it to kill us. Okay. I usually visualize this as a pyramid, but what I believe is that above this pyramid, there are also evil hands. Evil's a big word, but uh, at play, because I don't believe, for example, Bill Gates could do this on his own. I don't think he has it in him, frankly. Uh, I don't mean in terms of uh, character, but I mean actually in capability. So I don't think he's the one who's masterminding this and, you know, whipping the horses to make it happen. I think to me, my opinion is, is there are people above him and in the same way as perhaps 
Zuckerberg is a, a puppet that apparently invented Facebook. I believe uh, Gates is also a puppet at the hand of uh, puppet masters above. What do you Correct. think about that? I, I think I think um, Francis Collins, head of the NIH, is a puppet. Um, I, I think I think Fauci's clearly a puppet master and has been for forty years. That's why it was so important. When Mickey heard the story, you know, again, he met me two years before and, and a, a friend of mine, he mentions it in the movie, uh, a friend of mine who met me at a meeting um, and just, you know, uh, you know, said, oh, my God, you know, you have no idea what, you, you know. And I said, well, yeah, I kind of do. And, and so and, and so we had to literally put a dead man's trigger at the end of, of Plague of Corruption. And that's that last chapter where we said, wait a minute, folks, we have all the information. So go ahead, kill me, and, and we release it all. And so what is, you know, so, you know, Fauci and the, and the heads, you know, all got together and, and hit the detonate button. Uh, they couldn't get, get rid of Trump any other way. I mean, it is, it is worldwide. It is World Health Organization. It is pure evil. Um, and, you know, Bill Gates, you know, has no medical background and he shouldn't be making, you know, decisions on vaccines or anything else. And, and yet you see him perpetrate his father's planned parenthood, you know, and if they can't get people to stop having kids, they just sterilize you. And that's what the Gardasil vaccines and everything else mm. um, is. Our kids with autism, they They'll never have families, you know, whole, whole generations. The, the polycystic ovary diseases, what you're seeing um, is um, uh, literally um, chronic disease. And, and, and they didn't kill us fast enough but, in but the this beginning. Is, this is organized crime. I mean, it's easy, I say it's easier to look back in history. But I mean, I'm just thinking in your earlier years of your career, you were uh, effectively a colleague of Fauci, right? And you were working, you both working under Dr. Rossetti. Is that correct? In the same? Nope. No? Nope. Okay. Nope. Um, uh, Fauci is NIAID. He's, mm -hmm. he's a colleague of Rossetti. You know, remember, they're 77 and 79 years old. I'm 62. I'm three generations of science behind. I'm a I'm a nothing technician who's just watching these evil and all Fauci wanted to do when and Gallo um, was you know you know get, get get credit get the Nobel Prize get credit for the discovery of HIV and um, and, you, you and say you're a nothing, but you were the one who isolated the HIV out of the saliva samples, weren't you? Yeah, I was, um, but I was a technician. I did my job, and we followed Luc Montagnier's direction, and we confirmed his result. But Luc Montagnier isolated the virus. And, and this is what's in our first book, Plague, the description of how Ronald Reagan, you know, you literally had a war between the French and, um, and, and the U.S. over who, and they didn't even start the antibody testing. The serology testing is the correct way to follow a virus around the world not a PCR test. And, and so, yeah, I was a, I just, I was a very well-trained, I'm a very skilled technician. I'm a lab rat. That's what I do. I isolate viruses and I associate them with disease and then satisfy Koch's postulates or Hill's criteria because it's mm -hmm. unethical to inject HIV in anybody but the military. 
and inject the military with HIV is what um, Robert Redfield and Deborah Burks did in, in, in the 80s and 90s, said they had a vaccine and, and gave many, many people HIV. Mm. So when I say organized crime, I'm, I'm not just talking about the HIV scam uh, or the, the, the COVID-19 scam, but also the, there is a scam according to the, the autism correlation with, with vaccination. Sure. Isn't there sure. a, a drug called Ceramin that I believe Correct. you said even was um, one of the listed essential medicines in the WHO even there it was listed, and yet that was somehow banned uh, and taken out Correct. of circulation. Correct. After the double-blind placebo-controlled study, what you would do normally do if we made a drug that worked so well, and Suramin was one of our first HIV drugs, we pulled everything off the shelf for the retroviruses with HIV. This is why this is why I got as a sense of humor, because I, I lived this. And, and that, that video and that film showing the banner, silence equals death. That's where we're at now. Silence mm. equals death. And so if you wear the mask and you're silenced, you will die. So, yes, um, <laughs> absolutely. The HIV scam, the Zika scam, the Ebola scam, um, all, the, all, all of these, um, H1N1, bird flu, swine flu, you know, who's standing next to whatever administration it is, what Democrat or Republican anthrax after 911. We mm -hmm. knew Bruce Ivins. He didn't do that. He got murdered and blamed for it. And I would have been murdered and blamed for it if we didn't have a 13 foot Boston Whaler. <laughs> wow. It's not funny, but it is. Um, it is the first chapter scientists at sea after Bobby's brilliant for um, forward. Because once I said to Bobby, I said, you know. You know, just read the last chapter. He said, oh, my God, he read the whole book and he and and he figured it out and he figured out the shingles vaccine, another live viral vaccine. Think about the explosion in these chronic diseases. You know, we don't test everybody. Ninety nine percent of the people have Epstein-Barr virus. We don't test anybody for expression of Epstein-Barr virus and say they have mononucleosis or Burkitt's lymphoma. But what are the vaccines causing? Oh, Burkitt's mm -hmm. lymphoma and little kids, you know, in vaccine court. So our experience got me to see an awful lot. So the cabal goes all the way to the highest levels of the government, HHS. So if your audience watches the movie that Andy Wakefield just made, 1986theact.com, you can see this is a carefully planned, organized crime on a worldwide scale to take away our freedoms and, and cover up these crimes against humanity and, and essentially um, do a holocaust. The Other Side of Midnight.com Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. 
theothersideofmidnight.com. Our next guest comes to us from Canada. The show is called Upholding the Vaccine Choice. Ted Koontz created vaccinechoice.com after the catastrophic effects on his son from taking a vaccine. Would you share with us how you made this journey from that painful place to being an activist who's making a difference in the lives of so many children now and those to come? Well, I, I didn't plan to be an activist, uh, for sure. I, I, I was a, a parent who I have to admit, uh, in hindsight, that I was not a responsible parent. I, I didn't do my research. I didn't do my homework around vaccinations. I simply took the word of our family physician when he said, you should vaccinate your child. Uh, my wife took him in. Uh, and wh- what we say is that the child that we took to the doctor, we got a different child coming home from the doctor. Josh was uh, severely neurologically injured by his DPT shot. Uh, He developed an uncontrolled seizure disorder. He had that uh, seizure disorder his entire life, Uh, passed away in 2017 at the age of 32 from a seizure. Uh, It it was heartbreaking. Um, You you know, first of all, you you lose your son. There's a death that happens. the beautiful, healthy child that we had at the beginning was gone. Uh, at one point, Josh was seizing 12 to 15 times a day, and each seizure was 15 to 20 minutes long. So we were living re- really from seizure to seizure to seizure, uh, and it was um, it was painful to to feel absolutely powerless to to stop my son from seizuring and and to reclaim his health. I could see that. Uh, you know, it seemed pretty obvious to me that the vaccine is what was responsible for the sudden decline in his health. Uh, the medical system absolutely denied that. Uh, they dismissed it. They were not interested in researching it. You know, I asked what I thought were reasonable questions like, uh, you know, surely it makes sense to uh, review the lot number of the product, see if other people or other children that received that same lot number were also affected, you know, uh, no interest at all in, in that. They, they said it would be a waste of their time and resources. So I decided to do my own homework. And what I discovered is that vaccines are not nearly as safe nor nearly as effective as we have been told to believe. And it, and it really is, uh, I think it's uh, one of the most destructive, damaging scams uh, in humanity. And, uh, you know, the fact that it's the foundation of our medical system suggests that our medical system is really not based on solid evidence-based medicine. It's not personalized medicine. It, it is, uh, you know, there's an agenda here. And, and I think one of the agendas is, is clearly greed, uh, amongst others. Well, and I can imagine the distress when you see that the companies no liability. Well, and I, I, I think that was something that surprised me and surprises most people when I talk about this, is they, they're shocked to discover that the vaccine injury is the only industry and vaccines are the only product where the manufacturer is not legally liable for injury or death caused by their products. And that, that was granted to, uh, to, to the vaccine industry uh, by Congress in the United States in 1986. And I would suggest that that was uh, an incredible turning point uh, in, in, uh, in medicine, 
because what it did is it allowed the vaccine industry to begin to, to sell products uh, that they had no liability for. And so that there's no incentive on their part to, to ensure that their products are as safe as possible. Uh, instead, what they've done is they've used their resources from selling their products to capture, in my view, capture politicians and, and the medical or the regulatory agencies such that they have increased the mandates for vaccination uh, all throughout the world. And so what you have is a product that's mandated. They've taken away the right of parents to medical choice. And then the, the industry is, is not liable in any way for the harms that they cause. I, I, I think that's incredibly uh, not only unethical and immoral, but it's destructive. And, and the results would show that our children today are sicker than any previous generation. I think going back to the 70s or something along those lines, uh, was it one, there was statistically one person with autism in 10,000, something along those lines. And today, after all the different cocktails of vaccinations that people are given, uh, we're into one person in 60 or one person in 50, I believe, has some level of autism. Is is that knocking on the right door of the correct numbers? Or You're absolutely right. So prior to 1970, it was extremely rare. Uh, it would be unlikely for a physician to see a case in his, in his practice. You know, they use the number one in 10,000, but if you what you come to realize is that when you examine those cases, you, you realize toxicity in those individuals or those children. Today, the numbers, uh, Timothy, are actually closer to 1 in 36. And in really? boys, it's, it's 1 in 28. The amount of stories that I heard uh, of, of parents who believed their child was normal until their vaccination was over and over again. But the amount of autism that I've seen happen in the last decade is shocking. Uh, it, it breaks my heart because I absolutely believe without a doubt that this is vaccine related. The evidence is compelling and overwhelming. And if you watch the movie Vax that came out a, a few years ago where um, the, the CDC whistleblower came forward and said, we have been manipulating the data. We've been lying to you. Uh, I'm sorry that we did what we did, but we absolutely have known for 15 years that vaccines cause autism. I'd really like to um, talk to Ted about peace begins with me because I could go on and on and I will <laughs> about the science behind this, but I'd like to, to kind of go into the, um, to the, the attitude of the, the thought process. So Ted, what do you, what would you say to that idea? Well, it was certainly a journey that I needed to figure out. I, after my son was injured, I was incredibly angry. I was resentful. I have to say I was in despair. Um, and I, I was, uh, I have to say I was stuck there. And the ironic thing is that I'm a psychotherapist. Uh, I, I worked in private practice for 30 years. And so I would go to work every day to assist others to move through their emotional trauma and uh, live uh, a more joyful or successful life. And yet I couldn't get past uh, my anger and my resentment about the loss of the health of my son. And then I had this, uh, an experience that I'd like to share with you that was really, uh, I would say, transformative in my life. Um, Josh and I had this kind of father-son ritual that when I came home from work, I would drive up the driveway and park my car uh, in, in the carport that we had at the back of the property. 
And as the car went up alongside of the house, Josh would hear the sound of my car and he would know that his dad was home. So he would run to the window to watch me uh, as I got out of the car and he was happy to see me and he would always yell, hi, dad. But, but as Josh got sicker and sicker, the number of times he was at the window got fewer and fewer because he was spending more and more time in seizure. On this particular day, I drove up the driveway and I parked my car and I looked to the window uh, as I always did and he was there. I could still see his face in my mind's eye and he was grinning from ear to ear and he yelled, hi, dad. And I said, hi, Josh. But I, I did something different that day. I just stood there and looked at him and it's like I wanted to absorb every moment of seeing my son there and his joy in seeing me. And I had gratitude that he was well enough that day to see me. But as I stood there looking at Josh, something happened. And what I heard was a voice. And the voice was as loud as it was spoken. And what I heard was actually a question. And the question I heard was, when your son looks through the glass at you, what does he see? And so I thought about that. What does he see when he looks at me? And the answer seemed to be, he sees a father who's angry. He sees a father who's afraid. He sees a father who's in despair. He sees a father who's in resentment. And he sees a father who's rejecting his own son because the truth was, I didn't want this disabled child. I wanted the other son that I had before all of this began. And when I came to that moment of clarity, I decided that my son deserved better than that from his dad. And so I made a commitment that day to Josh. And I said, Josh, I'm going to make peace with your medical condition. And I'm going to learn to fall in love with the son that I have, not the son that I don't have. And it really began a very deep, I would say, spiritual journey for me of how do I make peace with something that I don't want or uh, resisted. And I had to learn to accept that I have a son who ended up having the mental capacity of a two-year-old that required 24-hour care for the rest of his life, that every time he seized, I thought he would die in front of my eyes, but I had to learn to make peace with that. And I, and I did. And the book really captures the journey that I went on of how I came to move through my anger and my fear and my despair and hold a higher vibration, because I felt like if I was going to be of service to my family and to my community, I needed to come from a place of compassion and love and acceptance and forgiveness. I imagine that's one of the topics you handle in your book, Dare to Question One Parent to Another. Well, exactly. And so what I, you know, I was trying to reach uh, parents that are open to thinking about this medical decision. I mean, there are those that are so captured doesn't matter what you say, they can't hear you. And I didn't want to preach to the choir, the people that already have done their homework and, and done their research. And so my, my purpose was to, to write a book that I thought would begin to introduce them to the topic. And I thought if I asked questions and provided some answers, that that might begin to open them up to uh, thinking for themselves. So that was what the goal was. That sounds parallel to your other book, How Can I Wake Up When I Don't Know I'm Asleep? I love that title. Well, uh, I have to say that that title came to me at some point, and I knew the title of my next book. I just didn't know what was going to be in it, and it took a number of years before the content uh, 
finally filled out that book. But it's true is that I, I think uh, humanity for the most part is asleep and it, it's time that we woke up. And I think that's what this whole COVID thing is going to do is I think it's, it's challenging humanity to become adults, to wake up. What would you say um, in relationship to people at this point, uh, being what you've gone through and, and all of the, the different, you know, you've had a very different viewpoint than a lot of people have experienced. Well, first of all, let me just say that I absolutely agree with you is that the, the real epidemic that we're facing is fear and it's, it's been, it's manipulated fear, it's coerced, it's intentional. Um, you know, there is a very sophisticated programming that's happening and most of it is through the mainstream media. And I, I too have said the same advice, turn off your TV set. Uh, engage your community. If you didn't know, uh, if, the, if you weren't listening to the TV, would you be afraid? Um, we have started putting out some flyers uh, from Vaccine Choice Canada and basically says, uh, you know, if you knew the real risk of dying from COVID, would you be afraid? And we, we give the facts. Uh, we also have a similar one that says, if you knew the science behind masking, would you still wear a mask? And you know, what we're trying to do is educate people, but when they're captured by fear, as you know, is it, 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 it invokes a trauma response. It shuts down, uh, you know, the higher parts of our brain. People are operating out of uh, fight or flight. They're operating out of su survival mode. And so they're not able to think well. And, you know, it, as long as people are acting out of free fear, we're going we're gonna to overreact and we're going to be very destructive in our ways. And and, and my concern is that uh, the, the epidemic of fear is, is uh, in my view, it's quite intentional. It's, uh, uh, it is being done on purpose as a mechanism of, of capture and control, and it's working for many people. And so I invite people to reclaim the authority and the responsibility of storytelling. And so in this moment of crisis, what story will, will I tell myself? Who will I choose to be? in the story of COVID-19. And I try very hard to monitor my vibrational frequency and hold it at a high vibration. And uh, there was a David Hawking's uh, developed what's called the map of consciousness where he calibrated emotion on a scale between zero and a thousand. And he would say anything be below uh, 200 on that scale is destructive. And so our goal is to uh, hold the vibration above 200, which is, you know, acceptance, forgiveness, compassion, love, peace, joy. Whereas below 200 is anger, resentment, and shame, guilt, fear. Um, and unfortunately, much of our mainstream media evokes uh, a very low vibration. There are so few, there in the thousands, we are billions, we are billions of people. So they need technology, very advanced technology to be able to control us. And that is where AI 5G comes in. And then through the vaccine also get rid of two thirds of us. So it's like a very, very, very dark agenda. They want to play out. But I tell you, the way I see the future, oh my God, fantastic. Oh, like my mom yeah. said, fan-bloody-tastic. Hi, 
Hi, this is Ola Damagod from LightOnConspiracies.com. You know, over the years I've done some 500 to 1,000 international interviews, and I just want to say the other side of the news is one of my favorite shows. So enjoy. And welcome back to The Other Side of the News. Our next guest comes to us from England. Mark Steele is a weapons expert, inventor, patent writer, and so much more. He is the technical advisor for SaveUsNow.org. The show is entitled 5G Man of Steel. He recently won a court battle against the rollout of 5G in Gateshead, UK. We can clearly see that this technology, which is being rolled out even during this COVID pandemic, lockdown, whatever you like to call it, it seems that it's absolutely paramount for the authorities to continue setting up the 5G uh, transmitters. Now, they seem to be over, over-engineered for what they're meant to do, what we're, they're alleged to do. So the question comes to my mind is, you know, if this technology has firstly not been tested properly, secondly, we the people are the guinea pigs that are being actually we are the test and thirdly you know there's all sorts of questions you know are they harmful are they harmless you know some people who seem to be totally oblivious to any idea that these things are harmful at all other people like yourself are absolutely dead certain that they are harmful and i understand that you've you've also made huge uh, waves in improving that in court so would you like to tell us a little bit about that well the first time you were this uh, these uh, cellular systems, these microcells that were being fitted to street furniture, had a number of neighbours, because obviously we know I'm a, you know, I've, I've got quite an interesting background, but I had a number of neighbours who knocked on my door, one in particular who told me that since the LED streetlights had been fitted, she was having nosebleeds every night. Uh, I found that quite interesting. Uh, That's and I, terrible. In the, well, in the first instance, I didn't believe her. Because obviously light radiation, I can tell you now, it doesn't cause nosebleeds. But what I noticed was this small antenna on the top of the light. And obviously radar operators suffer nosebleeds. Um, so I knew about that. And I was quite concerned, but I didn't really pay much attention. I'd actually had a couple of, uh, you know, I used to sleep really, really well. And I'd started having some sleepless nights, waking up in the night, but didn't make the connection. I've got blackout blinds in the home, so obviously the LED streetlights most certainly weren't uh, polluting my home, because obviously I know that you know these lights aren't as what people say are safe. So it wasn't until I went, I was at a local shop, and I was talking to another neighbour, uh, and a lady. I said, "Have you heard about you know? I'm not going to mention her name, but have you heard about this particular neighbour who's?" telling me that she's getting nosebleeds uh, with the installation of these LED streetlights. And she then, had, she said to me, she said, well, I've never had nosebleeds ever in my life. And this was a woman in her 50s. She said, until they put those LED streetlights, I've started having nosebleeds every, every night. And that's when I thought, hang on a minute, there's something not right here. So I then took some uh, electromagnetic uh, measuring equipment, some meter in, and I metered the radiation in the first lady's room, and it was 1,700 millivolts. I knew 
immediately that the Council Europe 1815 resolution, the maximum I can expose you to long-term stone at Millie Falls. So I was, I was shocked. Um, I then measured the radiation in the other lady, the, other, the next lady's neighbour's home, and she was hitting about 1,200 millivolts. But they had these small antenna fitted to street furniture, I think only about 10 metres from their bedroom windows. However, that was still very, very high for a, for a residence. And consequently, I did more investigation. And then I wrote to the council. The council were extremely evasive about the technology, but they did send us the product uh, data and who the company was. So I started investigating. Well, my first court of port, uh, first port of call was to the FCC because all antennas around the world have to be regulated by the FCC. So it was Part 15 FCC approved. So I looked for the the, uh, the test. And when I got the imagery sent back from the FCC on this antenna, I realized that the part of the imagery didn't fit with the standards, this approval. This is a different thing, isn't it? Because the 5G is, is a radio frequency, but the when you say it's optically harmful, is that because of the stroboscopic effect from the, the light emitting diode well, itself, or is it, is, it, is it also radio frequency? All electromagnetic radiation travels at the speed of light. Right? Mm-hmm. We, obviously, it's definitions, obviously the scientific um, definition. When I talk about light radiation, I'm talking about in the terahertz what okay. we would okay. suggest is the visible visible light spectrum, but it's all light. All mm. all radiation is light. It all travels at the speed of light. However, one hundred eighty six thousand miles per second, whatever it is. Yeah. Exactly. You, yeah. you, what you what we do is we we basically chop it up into pieces so people can understand it in a more you know sensible and let's say a layman's terms perspective. So you've got megahertz, gigahertz, terahertz. Then you move into uh, you know, X-rays, and then you move into cosmic rays, gamma rays, so where it gets very, very dangerous. But the only difference between it is its compactness. It's all the same thing. It's mm-hmm. just it, it has different aspects in the visualization of what we live in is what we call Earth. It's all the same. It's basically just energy and air. It's all about yes. frequency. It's all about energy and air. I was pretty concerned when I got the uh, the documents back about this piece of hardware. It said it was part 15 FCC approved. Now a part 15 FCC approved antenna at 30 meters can emit no more. Let's see if I was to meter it, it would be no more than five millivolts at 30 meters. It's the same as the one that's in your deck phone. You know, pretty innocuous, not going to be dangerous. We were measuring from minimum 600 millivolts to three and a half thousand millivolts at at least 10 meters from these transmitters because obviously there's varying uh, radiation levels it all depends on architects and all the rest of it but that was the wide range but we were averaging in gates and in bedrooms 1200 millivolts and the european guideline is 200 the council of europe the international courts have deemed 200 as a reasonable level of radiation for long term However, the bioinitiative report, it states that the radiation level should be no more than 30. Now, the bioinitiative report, there were scientists 
very, very uh, well-educated in this particular field. Experts in the field say should be exposed to no more than 30 millivolts long-term. The courts, however, took a more pragmatic view, because obviously there's a lot of radiation about, took a more pragmatic view and said 200. We were minimum 600, averaging 1,200, and I had up to 3,500 millivolts in bedrooms in Gated. So what is this extra power for? I mean, Mark, seriously, this is like minimum three times more than the legal limit and up to, what, I don't know, 17 times, 17 and a half times yeah. the legal limit. So what on earth is this power for? Well, the, when, I, when I got my hands on the equipment and started looking at the antenna design and the power capacity of the antennas, see, the council said it was a control management system so it could switch the lights on and off. The lights were on all over the borough. It wasn't for switching lights on and off. This was urban radar, and each each single antenna was a single element in a massive radiation array. So basically, a radar scanning piece of equipment, mass amounts of radiation. I mean, we had 31,875 transmitters in a very small area. So you can understand that the increase in radiation was significant. However, it was more powerful than what these antennas had been approved to, significantly more powerful, which was very, very worrisome to me. And when I actually looked at the antenna design, the antenna design is a target-acquiring weapon. And I can shoot you a signal using that antenna by collimating or using the offset phase the rear uh, part of the antenna capability to scan, to radiate, to scan, to see, but to shoot radiation signals at your target in the area. Now, obviously, you can understand most people, you tell them, you know, your local council have just spent £75 million of your money putting a target acquiring weapon system in a light head, they're going to laugh at you. They're going to think it's unbelievable. Well, I tell people it's unbelievable because I couldn't believe it, and I'm an expert Consequently, I was absolutely, you know, shocked to the courts. The reason why I spoke to the guy the, uh, in the U.S., who I yes. know, uh, U.S. Naval Research Officer, who I knew exactly, he knew, and I knew exactly what it was. However, since then, I did a talk in um, Sheffield at the Democratic Veterans Conference on 5G and the fact that it, in all its technical parameters, it is a weapon system masquerading as a telecommunication system. So, Mark, when we're talking about this overkill in, in power into the uh, the power lines, uh, which are driving these transmitters, which are massively over the, the minimum legal, or sorry, I should say it's the maximum legal limit, then is this about surveillance or is it about actually going one step further and, uh, you know, causing harm? The maximum I can expose a human to is one milliwatt. Mm -hmm. And these transmitters on the street furniture are 25. That's now, if huge. I want to scan, if I want to scan your home and use a lot less power than, than that, uh, if, if I want to see through your home, and especially in the sub-gigahertz, sub-gigahertz frequencies travel through concrete brickwork with ease. Everybody knows that because you're 2.4 gigahertz. If you put your Wi-Fi router... Uh, search on there now you'll see all the neighbors Wi-Fi come through your home that's 2.4 2.4 is a higher frequency so it doesn't travel as well through big brick and concrete 
some gigahertz travels to concrete and brickwork, it is, it's for urban environment, radar, so I can see through a cityscape at distance. These antennas on the street furniture have a 15-kilometre footprint. We've got one every few yards in on top of every piece of street furniture. And mm. if I wanted to scan your home, I don't need anything near that type of power density to be able to see in your home, to be able to record, listen. All, all illegal, by the way. These, this equipment can see you and can hear you all in breach of your human rights, you know, your right to life, because this is what I'm going to say, the, the, the catastrophic effect of that type of radiation over time will cause significant uh, mental health problems, biological problems, basically, you know, harming the, uh, harming the people, but also killing off the uh, small insects and environmental crime Anything that gets in within close proximity in the near field, the near field of those transmitters is about seven meters. Mm-hmm. Anything in the near field of that transmitter will be killed. So, so pollinators, birds, we see birds sitting on the top of those uh, streetlights, basically getting warmed up by the radiator, by the way. You know, in the winter, we see a lot of birds sitting on there getting cooked literally cooked. They just think they're getting heated up a little bit because obviously it's a little bit chilly. But they'll go away and die. It'll fry their kidneys, uh, kill the eggs inside them, you know, anything. So it's an environmental crime. Mm-hmm. Without, the, you know, if, if, if you just put the fact that it's a little bit more sinister, that, you know, these this equipment's being fitted without any environmental impact analysis, no health impact analysis. And we ended up in court with Gateshead Council where they tried their damnest to gag me the fabricated evidence against me. The mayor said I went to attack her in the, uh, in the council chamber. The, the chief executive confirmed that in her statement that I went to go for her as well. In the, fortunately for me, there was a, uh, a citizen in the public gallery who videotaped the whole proceedings which we presented to the court. And when the judge looked at those that video evidence, he yes. looked at the chief executive and asked her, where is Mr. Steele in this video going for you? She couldn't hmm. even answer. And that was part of a conspiracy by the council to cover up the crime that they had committed on the people. Now, since then, they've started removing in the multi-million pound cover-up than removing the antennas as we speak. Because oh, really? the antennas, yeah, yeah, they're removing them all. They're removing all those antennas to cover up the crime that they committed. We have a minimum people who I knew personally, my own brother, my own cousin, all the, the you know, their the, the children, my, my cousin's daughter lost a baby, my brother's true. son lost a baby. We have 20 women. In my near locality, in a, you know, in a, within a small area, all lost babies at near full term and the exposure from the radar system from that, those transmitters. And obviously the terrible. evidence, the science goes with that. It was horrendous. And we had children having nosebleeds. We had ch- people having skin burns, radiation burns, all reported to the police 
while the police ignored and covered it up. In fact, a number of people who complained to Northumbria police, I won an IUPC case against the police for the non-investigation of what I said was genocide. This is the Independent Office for Police Conduct. So I won my case against Northumbria police, and they have still refused to investigate this crime. This is Dr. Carrie Made on the other side of the news, and I'm excited to be here because we have freedom of speech and no censorship. And welcome back to the other side of the news. Our next featured guest is from Down Under, Max Egan, and the show is Mask Charade. Max is the creative genius behind thecrowhouse.com. He is an artist, musician, and visual wizard with 3D programs and currently lives in New South Wales, Australia. Max focuses on exposing governmental mind control, that is, dumbing down the population in every venue, every medium possible. Well, yeah, I mean, this is a thing you can do. I mean, print that up onto a T-shirt and just wear that when you go out shopping. And it says that during slavery, slaves were forced to wear masks as a way to symbolically mark them as not having a voice and also to be owned while under control by another entity. And it's got some pictures on there which show some historical masks that slaves used to wear and also people in face masks. I mean, and you can write things on your face mask, such as this is a mind control device, or this mask is damaging my health, but they're forcing me to wear it. Things like that, I think, are better than even putting comical statements on there. Just put blatantly on there what's going on. I mean, if I go to a shop and they tell me that I need to wear a mask to go in there, I explain to them that wearing a mask is bad for your health, um, that you're exhaling viruses and bacteria all day just by the natural course of breathing and speaking and licking your lips. Viruses and bacteria is coming out of your mouth all day. Normally, this is dispelled into the atmosphere, but by wearing a mask, you're trapping it all into your mask and you are breathing through it all day, thereby massively increasing the viral load on your body. 90 to 95% of doctors say you should not wear a mask. So if you're claiming that I need to wear a device which is going to damage my health, in order to enter your store under the claim that is um, to protect my health, I am requiring you to provide proof of that claim, please. And if it's legislated that I must wear this health-damaging device, I require the politician to provide me with proof of claim. Otherwise, I'd like you to provide me with the name of that individual so I can take the necessary steps to have that person charged with abuse of the office that they hold and removed immediately as as a danger to public health. And that's what I, I say to the it. person at the door at the store, straight up. That's my first statement to them if they tell me I have to wear a mask, you know, and they usually sort of freak out and go get the manager. So, you know, I just refuse to wear them. You know, I <laughs> and say, do if, they you, let if you're you going to make me damage my health to stop it, you stop it, you're storming. What, what is wrong with you people? Why, why are you doing this? I mean, doctors only wear these masks while they're operating so they don't spit in the wound. They'll bury themselves elbow deep in the entrails of the person that they're operating on. They don't get any diseases from it because they're not transferable this way. You know, you shouldn't be believing what your government's telling you. You should be listening to what doctors are saying, and they're telling you not to wear these things. And besides, 
You know, if I were to offer you medical advice, I could be charged with you know offering medical advice when I'm not a doctor. So how is a politician able to you offer you the medical advice or to even legislate that you must wear this mask under the claim of any medical pretext when they're not a doctor? Isn't that a breach of their own legislation? You know, this is the sort of stuff, the, the sort of um, arguments I have with people. And I get quite, you know, um, you know, strong about it, I think. You know, there's such a thing as, as wholesome, righteous anger. And we've, we've been taught to be too calm and collected in our approach and not rock the boat. And I think in, in, in lieu of what we're facing, we, we should rock the boat and we should express the, the wholesome, righteous anger that we all are experiencing inside from these ridiculous rules that have been put in place. That's what all this has been about, you know. This whole thing has been in play for a really long time, and it's about social distancing and it's about vaccines. You know, the whole um, cover of this pandemic and COVID and all of this sort of stuff, it's, it's about the vaccines and social distancing. That, that's been the plan all along. But um, they've put out these, uh, these, these, you know, distancing and elevators and all this stuff. So I'm getting these stickers made up. When you see that you go to the supermarkets and you, you walk into the shopping centre and they've got the marks on the floor, please stay this, this far apart. And they've got a couple of, you know, footprints there. You've seen them when you walk into the supermarket stuff oh, now? Everywhere, everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Well, again, these stickers make up that just say, please wait here until you realise your government is brainwashing you and just put it there on the sticker. <laughs> so that when they first look down at it, that's the first thing they say. Get about 100 of these made up, and when no one's looking, just reach down on the floor and just, just stick that on the sign there next to those little feet. That sort of stuff really starts to reach people because someone will look down and they'll think about it and it'll just be implanted in their brain then. The only reason they've done that is because they know and have openly admitted that it's unenforceable. So if they kept everyone locked down over Christmas, they know that everyone's going to ignore it because you're going to go and see your family at Christmas. Of course you are. And they know that you've got 65 million people in the UK. You can't, you can't police 65 million people going to each other's houses for Christmas. You can't do it. There's not enough police officers. So what they've done to try and keep some kind of you know, appearance of power is give us those days so it's like i know you're going around each other's houses but we let you do it because that's better than keeping us locked down us all doing it anyway and them openly showing their weakness which which they have they can't enforce it and and the police chief chief constables has said as much that it's unenforceable and so that's what i think people need to realize is that all these music venues could open all these theaters could open all these restaurants could open all these bars could open as long as they all opened because then it's unenforceable. Hello everyone, my name's Gareth Ike. It's been a pleasure to talk on the other side of the news. Fantastic conversation with Kinthea, Timothy and Annetta. And I wish you all the best with a fantastic podcast. Cross my aching arms Body language clear Grease my breaking heart Make my stand right here For action over hope Make my stand right here For action over hope For action Show me all.
And welcome back to The Other Side of the News. Our featured guest in this segment is Howard Lichtman, and the show is entitled The Unusual Suspects. Howard Lichtman is the co-founder and executive director of ThickRedLine.org. He is also the founder of the Thick Red Line Project, where he has pioneered conversations between peacemakers and communities across the country and around the world. And we have with us tonight Howard Lichtman, who's going to fill us in on how his journey began in making peace with peace officers. Howard? Well, and this is kind of fascinating because as I take it from the intro, we all agree that there's something suspicious about the COVID. And this all started with a group of friends who were suspicious about what they were being told by the media and by the government about the COVID. And uh, we got together and decided to, that you know it didn't really make sense, and we decided to go into the hospitals. And in what the LA Times called the epicenter of COVID in California in early April, when things were supposed to be pandemic conditions, we found on video, empty tents, empty waiting rooms. We went through the testing procedure, talked to the guy doing the testing. They didn't have any, they were hardly testing anybody and they weren't seeing any increase in the usual and customary deaths that they see every single year from seasonal influenzas, pneumonias and COPDs and things like that. And so uh, that fueled us up, and the next week there weren't 10, there were 20, and the week after that there were 37, and the week after that we had 400 people in a Facebook group, and we were regularly turning out 60, 70, 80 plus people at peaceful civil disobedience to the lockdowns, mask mandates, and to uh, uh, you know potentially what you know could be mandatory vaccinations or at least. Uh, you know, try and get you to do it by not letting you travel and, and other means of coercion through these kind of monopoly companies. And so when we would be out doing civil disobedience, typically we'd be reopening a park or we'd be reopening a beach. And the police would come out and the police would say, hey, you know, we don't want to be doing this. We like going to the beach. What do you want us to do? And it struck me that they were in, you know, a tight predicament as well and they obviously didn't want to be bankrupting local businesses and a lot of them obviously didn't believe in the covid and so i had a little bit of an epiphany and i said well you should get together collectively because i'd watch them get fired one at a time the way greg anderson was in washington state and so if they stand up one at a time they get hammered down and i said you've got to get together collectively and you've got to, as a department, draw a thick red line in the sand and just refuse to enforce victimless crimes. And that is – if you're because all – if you talk to police, they all have a thick red line in the sand that they're not willing to cross. It's generally gun confiscation. Some of them have said publicly that they're not going along with the lockdowns. They're not going along with the mask mandates. They're not going along with Thanksgiving. So, so, so the, everybody's got a thick red line somewhere. And so the if you're going to draw a thick red line, the logical and moral place is no victim, no crime. And that one tiny change in policing would bring peace to the streets. It would restore respectability to the police. It would save the taxpayers billions. 
It would break the backs of drug cartels and human traffickers. It would uh, get hundreds of million plus people a year out of jails and being scooped up or being ticketed or being fined, feed, and harassed. And then it would keep hundreds of thousands of people, of largely peaceful people, they get thrown into frequently for-profit prisons for crimes where nobody has been harmed other than the government or the state of California or the state of you know whatever state it is. And mostly these are peaceful people that are being thrown into these for-profit prisons where they're being forced to work at, at you know, as essentially slave labor. Um, and so it's just got to stop. And so the way that it stops is the police can collectively refuse to enforce victimless crimes. And if they're supported by the community, then there's nothing that politicians can do to force them to carry out this tyrannical plan. And so it unites the people with the police against the politicians. It has all of these other benefits for society. And it ha- and we're and we're getting this off the ground at the at the just the perfect time where the police are being asked to do more and more tyrannical things, from the lockdowns to the mask mandates, to the to red flag laws, which is stealth gun confiscation. And so most of the police they didn't sign up when they signed up. They didn't have red flag laws and lockdowns and mask mandates and forced vaccination. And so, uh, so this gives the police a way out, allows them to keep their jobs, restores, gets them focused on real crimes with real victims. It's got so many different positives. I haven't heard anybody give a negative, and so that's what what I'm doing, and that's how we want to help the police. Well, I really congratulate you. I know that in the several of our past shows, I've been putting up links, our collectively links, of sheriffs refusing. To carry out these orders, and I'm, I'm pretty confident they're influenced by you. So I thank you. I mean, our police are in a very strange position. You know, they have families, they they have loved ones, and here they're being asked to do things that are just not right. They're not respecting of human life, and you know, it's got to be a very deep conflict within them. So you've, you're you providing a solution that is so needed. And I'm also glad that you brought up the for-profit prisons. I mean, if that isn't a, a form of slavery, I don't know what is. You know, just raking in the money, and then they have them out there working too, you know, putting out the fires. There are a lot of prisoners that go out and put out fires so they they work in call centers for some of the some, for Fortune 100 monopoly companies. It's it's you know crony capitalism. It's it's the worst form of crony capitalism and kind of almost like disaster capitalism that you can get. It's you know it's 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 finding people that are breaking politician laws and scooping them up and throwing them into prisons where they're forced to work for monopoly companies. It's unbelievable. What are they, what are you getting from the police officers? Are they aware to this point of what's going on, or you know, what, what's your general consensus with with or what's their general consensus? I should say. Well, I'll tell you this: I see a lot of them that obviously don't believe in the COVID because they're not paying attention to these protocols at all when they don't have to be. 
And so, and there's a lot of people from the governor of California to other high-ranking politicians that don't seem to be paying attention to the protocols, except when the cameras aren't rolling or when they're not interacting with the public and everything. And so, I think, and I think a lot of them are just as suspicious as everybody, you know, on the show is in what we're being told about the communicability and the lethality of the COVID. And um, you know, I. It's. I, I'm assuming that the 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 police, are, you know, are on a spectrum like the rest of society, and some of them undoubtedly know about all of the evidence of foreknowledge and all the evidence of disaster capitalism, and and uh, and so so I have a feeling that there's you know that there's there's a lot of the police that are you know that are just as distrustful as we are about what we're being told by the monopoly media. So when you look at when you look at history, it's like when when there are revolutions. We we know through history uh, when people are are under the the oppression of tyranny, and the people finally the the masses. When I say the people, uh, finally fight back. Uh, there is this point at which the uh, the peace officers, whatever they may be in that country, whatever they may call them join the people in general. They do not fight the people because they are the people. You know, they, they aren't separate from, they are not the elite, they aren't the ruling class. They're, they're, they're along with the, the people. By doing this, do you think that there's any chance that we can possibly avoid a horrible, bloody conflict with that if we can get this, you know, if we can, we can unite as people with the police officers? Do you see that working? Oh, absolutely. The only way that tyranny comes to your door is in a uniform wearing a badge. And if the police say they're not going to do it, then it's game over. And so the, you know, the, the powers that shouldn't be and what I'd like to call the organized crime government in Washington, D.C., that is looting the people with, you know, through using government as a technique – I, you know, if the if the police don't go along with it, they're completely impotent. And the and more and more police, I think, as you're seeing, they're saying no to lockdowns. They're saying no to mask mandates. They're saying no to Thanksgiving uh, limits on who can come over for Thanksgiving dinner. And they're saying no to red flag laws. And more and more are standing up every single day. And I only see that going in one direction. Step with us into the brave new year. Happy New Year!